This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to our special Saturday AI Futures series here on the AI and Business Podcast. This is episode 11 of 12 of our series on AI governance, and we're speaking to a person who is arguably the best-known voice in artificial general intelligence anywhere in the world, and that's Ben Gertzel. Ben Gertzel got his PhD in mathematics from Temple University back in 1990, and since then has done a tremendous amount in AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. His first company, Nova Mente, in the early 2000s, was striving to be a pioneer in artificial intelligence. He's since founded the OpenCog Foundation, a nonprofit that he runs, which is an organization working towards an open source artificial intelligence framework. He's also founder at SingularityNet, which is an open source marketplace for artificial intelligence services. We speak with Ben this week about the same topic we've been speaking with at our other guests, artificial intelligence governance, but particularly Ben's vision of how AGI might come forth into the world. While I think it's somewhat common for folks to suspect that maybe the Chinese government or the U.S. government or Google or Facebook might birth whatever is the first artificial general intelligence, Ben disagrees and has an idea about decentralized AGI and what that might look like, and also a rather optimistic view as to how we might manage and govern such an artificial general intelligence. No series on on the governance of AI, especially in the long term, would be complete without an interview with Ben. My first conversation interview with him was way back in 2012, back when I had no listeners, no audience, no anything. So I'm always grateful to Ben for keeping up the conversation before we had all of you many thousand listeners around the world. And hopefully now that we have so many of you, you'll get a lot out of this episode. So without further ado, this is Ben Gertzel here in our AI Futures series on the AI and Business Podcast. So Ben, we'll start off by talking about the idea of centralized AI governance globally. There's sort of pros and cons. People have argued that past a certain threshold of AI, we may require it. For certain topics, we will. For certain topics, we won't. When you think about centralizing or not centralizing AI governance, what do you think those important distinctions are and where do you stand? The funny thing is when you started off with the phrase AI governance, I immediately was thinking about AIs doing the governance, not, <laughs> yeah. not, not humans yeah. governing AIs. Exactly. I, uh, I mean, that's in the end where we're going to get to with all the advanced technologies that humans are rolling out. Human beings are not going to be able to coordinate human society in an effective way. And we're going to need a gradual transition toward, uh, toward AI-powered governance of, of humans. But to get there, certainly in the early stages, we will need, you know, wise and judicious and agile human governance of, of AIs. And because initially the AIs aren't generally intelligent enough to to govern themselves and they're rather used as tools by humans and, and human institutions. Right. And during yep. during the time period when the AIs are mainly being tools, I mean Governance of AI is mostly about governing how various humans and institutions are using AI, which is a very important and and difficult problem, right? And then the really interesting thing will come in the transition between these two phases I've just described, right? Like, uh, so in the long run, which could just be a couple decades, or it could be longer. In the long run, we're looking at AI as doing the governance. And in the immediate term, we're looking at, okay, what regulations do we make to stop people from doing 
nasty things with AI and militate toward positive uses of AI. But then in the intermediate stage between those two phases, you've got AIs that are gradually getting more and more autonomy, gradually getting more and more general intelligence, right? And how how to regulate things in that context becomes quite interesting and 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 subtle, right? And and some countries, some legal systems are, are trying to take modest steps in, in, in that direction already, but there's a tremendous amount of unknowns. And so if we think about kind of the state of affairs today, um, there are folks who say, well, you know, when it comes to privacy of data, you know, maybe that should be done within individual countries. Well, when it comes to, you know, when facial recognition can and cannot be used, well, you know, maybe that's got to stay within countries. You know, there's other folks that argue that other things, maybe, you know, lethal autonomous weapons or, you know, some facets of kind of human rights, you know, maybe to some degree privacy fits in there. I know some people feel very strongly about facial recognition globally, that there's some threshold where even with today's tool like AI, Ben, that there should be some broader set of standards that humanity can kind of play by for the sake of our aggregate well-being and both both kind of peace and prosperity. Other people really think everything as far as today goes is a country decision and that's that. Would you agree with that? Um, do you see certain thresholds where it does make sense for, for global standards to fit in um, or are we too early for that or is it never a good idea? I think that where tool-based AI like we have now in the commercial sphere is concerned, the regulation of AI is not especially different from the regulation of many other types of, of software or, or hardware tools. The boundary is is quite difficult to draw, right? Like whether Cambridge Analytica was crunching people's Facebook profiles, you know, using basic statistical analysis in an Excel spreadsheet or using a machine learning algorithm, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. I mean, the issue yep, it doesn't. privacy and of, of manipulation yep. of people using their data, it's, it's the same thing, right? And, I mean, with face recognition, I mean, whether you want to consider that AI or not, it, it is what it is, right? And if you have something more complicated and subtle, like recognizing who someone is from from their gate or yep. from yep. The, the other people walking next to them or something. I mean, you may need more general intelligence to recognize people from these more indirect cues. But in the end, the the ethical and regulatory issues are about the same, right? It's more about the the panopticon we're building than about the the degree of intelligence that we're embedding in different parts of it. I think once the AIs get more autonomy as agents and are you know making their own choices in the world without humans tightly in the loop then you're getting into a fundamentally different class of of ethical and and regulatory issues and we you know we may be some small integer number of years away from that yep. but in terms of commercially rolled out software we're not there yet right we're talking about tool AIs. That's it, yeah. In terms of national versus global regulation, or I mean, in in US it becomes state versus federal even, right? I I, I mean, I would say on a pragmatic basis, this is going to be national regulation for the immediate future because the, the international community can't even regulate nuclear weapons effectively, right? And I mean, that's that's 
very clear what is a nuclear weapon and what isn't a nuclear weapon. There's not a fuzzy dividing line there. Yep. And also, there's not a lot of humanitarian and lucrative commercial uses for nuclear weapons that are very, very similar to the nasty uses we want to avoid, right? So even in a super clear case like that, the international community is doing a, a pretty bad job, right? So, I mean, in a case where the nasty things are like a few lines of code away from highly lucrative commercial things or highly beneficial humanitarian things, I mean, how how is the international community in practice going to cope with that? Very, very uselessly would be would be my my best guess. I mean, that that's not a normative statement that. It shouldn't be regulated globally. I mean, in, in an ideal setting, of course, in some sense, it should be, although the global dynamic could be a, decentra- a decentralized one rather than a dictatorial one, right? But in actual practice, you're gonna, as far as its governmental policies, it's going to be at the national level. The interesting question is whether some sort of de facto global regulation comes about through the rollout of just decentralized distributed networks that are used by everyone in the world, right? Because, I mean, we we have national regulation of the internet right now. I mean, the way Brazil deals with child porn is different than the way U.S. does, which is different than the way Australia does. But yet, for most things happening on the internet, it's like de facto global regulation just based on what people and businesses are doing, right? And I guess that may be the way that AI goes, is AI is going to be global, users are going to be global, providers are going to be global, the networks are going to be global. And then in extreme cases like weaponry or child porn or or something, right? In, In extreme cases, then governments will intervene. But the vast majority of what happens with AI will, in practice, not be heavily guided by by government. And but then yeah. there's big exceptions, right? Like China has a big exception. That's what I was just gonna say. China yeah. I mean that's 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 the a... internet. On the other hand, you know the Chinese internet in many ways is it's like a mirror image of the of the Western internet, right? I mean every major Western internet company has a Chinese company doing pretty much the same thing and then you have a lot of people with accounts on both sides of the great firewall and innovations are, are bouncing back and forth from one, from, from one side or the other. So it's, it's distinct, but it's extremely parallel, right? And, yeah, and the Chinese, yeah, yeah. Users, Chinese users will demand each innovation that's introduced in the West. And then the innovations introduced in the West, I'm sorry, the innovations that are used in China get propagated to the West also, like TikTok is spread to the West. Even, yeah, right? so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, 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 is, it is interesting. I mean, they have successfully avoided their internet being taken over by a handful of American companies, but yet it's not like they're evolving in a separate direction either, right? I mean, it's, it's the <laughs> well, same yeah, product, yeah. the same ideas and everything. I definitely, I mean, I can see the advantage to having their own, you know, Baidu's and Alibaba's and whatnot, and I have a lot of respect for those companies. Although it does feel categorically different to have sort of, you know, the equivalent of Mao Zedong thought as the sort of top-down 
mandate filter on everything findable. In well, well it's not really like that. I mean, that that's just like... Well, you, you can't be Googling Winnie the Pooh, can you? Or by doing Winnie the Pooh, can you? Or, or anything about Uyghurs. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly boundary lines that are really well built to sort of structure the right kind of thought. Well, sure. And there, I mean, there are boundary lines in the West that we just don't worry about or, or, uh, uh, or care about, right? I know so, a lot of people I mean, uh, tweeting about Trump right now and ain't their legs broken. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, there might be well, some there, of it. There are a lot of people tweeting about Trump right now. Certainly true. And the Chinese culture is is pretty different in That's, in, in yeah. that regard. Yep. I, I, would, I would I would I would just say the majority of Chinese internet users they're not thinking about that very often. Oh right? yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't I don't see I mean, this as a, it, it's yeah. not it's not an issue that they're concerned about. So I, I mean maybe whether they should be or shouldn't be is is different. But I mean similarly, like I'm not going to go on my public Twitter feed right now and say, I just bought the most amazing like jar of uh, high grade DMT from my friend, John Smith, who lives, uh, lives <laughs> yeah, on Bainbridge yeah. Island. Yeah, yeah, Incredible, yeah. right? I'm not going to do that because someone might go to John Smith's house and put him in jail for the rest of his life for selling high grade DMT, right? Yeah. And yeah. That, that's illegal in the US. So we don't, tweet about yep. stuff like that. That's true. That's probably. Yep. And we don't think about it, right? I mean, of course, it's annoying. If I was in charge of the US, I would I would legalize all recreational drugs and legalize communication about it, right? So so that that's annoying. I think yeah. it's bad. On the other hand, it's internalized into the way I interact on the internet, right? And I don't yep. I don't think about it very often while I'm using using the internet. And so that's that's kind of how it is in China. Like you look at Taobao, which is like eBay to the nth degree. And I mean, you can buy stuff on there so much cheaper with so much more variety than anywhere else on, on the planet. Like if you're, you're an electronics hobbyist and you want to build a robot, you go in there and you debate back and forth on the price with various sellers and you can buy all, all the parts you want and they'll mail them to you the next day. And the fact that you can't chat about your thought about Chinese political prisons with the guy who's selling you, uh, you know, a bag of uh, capacitors or something. I mean, it's not just not on your mind, right? So, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't want to say it's not meaningful. I mean, just like, I mean, drugs being illegal in the U.S. is, is also meaningful. I mean, all, all these oppressive things national governments do are meaningful and constrain life in, in, in certain ways. But I think the feeling of the average... Uh, user of Taobao. Yeah, they're not concerned about that during the Yeah, it's not different than the average user of like Amazon or or Weibo or something. So WeChat, WeChat was interesting with this coronavirus thing. Oh, go on, go on. So WeChat, the Chinese government controls, like a WeChat group can't have more than 500 people in it. So if you want to make like 10,000 people on your WeChat group, you, you, you make 20 groups of 500 people each and just uh. make a bunch of groups. So they, they have specific rules to stop you from using WeChat to address huge audiences. And of course, for like we have a Humanity Plus transhumanist WeChat group, a Beijing transhumanist WeChat group. I mean, these there's not a lot of talk about politics on there, and you just sort of don't do that in China. Yep. But I mean, it's 
quite free discussion about you know social implications of various AI technologies, and certainly you can complain about stupid things Chinese companies are doing, or why doesn't the government do this or that? I mean, there's a pretty free discussion. On the other hand, then, you know, in the beginning of this coronavirus epidemic, the doctors who talked on WeChat about the epidemic, they got put in jail, right? So what you had in in December, one of my friends went to a doctor in Hainan province, and the doctor was like, oh, you're sick. Well, there's this weird SARS variant going around. Let's uh, let's be sure you don't have that. So every doctor in China knew about COVID-19 in, in December, but they couldn't talk about it in WeChat groups, right? They could yeah. talk about it in private messages with each other. So, I mean, this was a case where the element of central control was bad, and had a serious bad effect on, on the whole world. And the Chinese people are pissed about it, right? I mean, the Chinese people are like, why the hell did you suppress these doctors from discussing medical information with other doctors? And that makes no sense. Like these doctors weren't, they're not trying to start a riot, right? And they're not spreading fake memes or, or something. They're doctors yeah. expressing a serious concern to other doctors. So I, I think that was a case which was bad, and every Chinese person thinks it's bad, right? And the central government, they just like fired some mid-level government officials who had to take the fall for it. But of course, it's it, it, it's a more endemic problem, right? You know, an, an earlier case in that, like Baidu, which is like the Chinese uh, Google, right? Yep. They, unlike Google, they sell search placement. Like they, they manjab ads and recommendations. Yeah, in, in the, the same feed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And so they were basically people with quack cancer clinics were paying to be listed top for like, how do you cure lung cancer or something? And then people were dying from these quack treatments that Baidu was listing at the top. And so again, the Chinese people revolted and got really pissed off at Baidu about that. I mean, to the extent people were heckling Robin Lee, Baidu's CEO, at public conference presentations and stuff. And and then the government banned paid search placement for medical queries. So Got they, it. I mean, okay. they, yeah, they can respond they, to things. They, they try to make adjustments within their system, and they're not stupid at making those adjustments. But still, even with agile adjustment to this system, it's going to be inferior in some ways to, to a more open system. Well, and I don't want to get hung up too much on the coronavirus. I mean, I, I do sort of draw a categorical line between general freedom of speech and not being able to talk about, you know, buying heroin. But, you know, regardless, yeah, th- th- there's some kind of constraints on both sides. I certainly, certainly kind of would have a preference there. But I like this idea that you're heading with, which is essentially that the internet in some way sort of manages itself. Of course, China has a bubble, but like you said, even there, there's so much permeation back and forth. When you think about what that could look like for AI, as you'd mentioned, it's so hard to even keep tabs on on nukes. Now, I think it can be debated how well international bodies have done in terms of preventing, let's say, you know, the trade of those kinds of chemicals or, you know, the spread of that kind of weaponry. I think those things could be debated. And I'm not an academic there enough to have a firm opinion. But certainly well, and we can we can't know what alternate pathways. Yep, we don't. Be. Yeah. Such as the that's that's why history is the the only bet we got. But they didn't have nukes back in Napoleon's day. So I got no I got no strong uh 
strong kind of, you know, anchor points. So with regards to clearly monitoring of artificial intelligence would be astronomically more challenging. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to look at how much compute is being used because we would presume a general intelligence would use a lot of compute. I mean, it's, it's so challenging to track that. But you brought up an interesting idea, which I think is a great place to start because I think it's kind of core to your notion of governance, at least in this phase one, right? The human phase of governance. And we will get into yeah. to the second part, of course, which is where we're, we're headed. That's that's, the, that's your territory. But if we talk about phase one here, as AI develops and sort of becomes essentially, pardon me if I'm if I'm not reframing properly, Ben, but sort of governed by just the set of standards, norms, behaviors, business use cases, consumer preferences that tend to sort of be a bubble around, you know, how AI fits and works in the world. Talk a bit about how you would see that developing in this first phase, maybe over the coming 10 years, for example. Um, how does that vision well, come to there life? Are, there are standards about things related to AI that could have a quite beneficial value in terms of so militating toward a more democratic type of AI being being rolled out and, and utilized globally. And I mean, GDPR is one interesting pointer in that direction. I mean, to the extent that we have adoption of some standards regarding when an individual's data is being used for something, you know, do they have the right to know how their data is being used and 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 what for, or to have it not used, right? So, yep. the, the need to explain to people what their data is being used for, and to track how their data is being used for this or that thing. I mean, this is complicated, but it, it that in itself is a lever to drive toward explainable AI, which is talked a lot about now, and toward a certain type of openness as to what type of, of AI is, is being developed, right? And I think it will be great to see more and more standards regarding explainability. So we've, in Singularity Net, we've done a project for a customer in Hong Kong on credit rating for small and medium enterprises. I mean, a fairly applied, uh, prosaic. Use case, yep. AI, AI project, but it's a real, it's a real use case. Oh, it's definitely valuable, incredibly valuable. Machine learning tools. But one of the cool things we did is we added to the customer's system, you know, a module that explains to the owner of the SME, like why they got the credit rating they did. And that was a bit subtle because you're using a machine learning model. It's a neural network. It's nonlinear. It's tangled up and complicated in nature, but you need to give some, comprehensible explanation to the user of why the model did what it did. What it did right? And that's, that can be very, very hard in some cases. But on the other hand, it's also interesting from an AI point of view, as well as from a, you know, privacy and uh, customer protection and, and even human rights point of view. Because if you look at how the human mind works, I mean, our, our unconscious mind makes decisions and has intuitions for reasons that we really don't always fully understand. Oh, absolutely not. Hand, yeah. Much of the function of the deliberative part of the human mind, the reflective consciousness, is to make up decent stories regarding the decisions and perceptions that's already made. And I mean, this is why Nietzsche said that the the consciousness is like the army commander who retrospectively takes responsibility for the actions of his troops and explains why what his troops did spontaneously on their own was his own brilliant plan. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, 
I mean, the, the elephant and the rider the analogy. Yeah. Afterwards, the process of making up that story afterwards about the plan is important, and that feeds into your unconscious and guides your ongoing thinking. So, in, in, I mean, in, in, in the same sort of way, even though you can't generally fully explain why the AI you know, gave the credit rating it did or recommended to arrest the guy it did or made the, the cancer diagnosis it did or discovered the, the new patent it did, if you can get a decent sort of approximate explanation for it, you're both doing something good for the people interacting with those AIs. You're giving them some agency and some power because they understand what's going on, which is a prerequisite for meaningful agency. But you're, you're also, in a way, nudging the AI toward general intelligence by adding that, that deliberative and narrative generating part to the pure pattern recognition part. So I think standards on explainability are going to be interesting. You see that coming about now in, in, in the Western world. It's not exactly governance, but I think it paves the way for various approaches to AI governance. It wouldn't be possible with AIs whose operation was completely opaque. And so, yeah, let's dive into that a bit, Ben. So I, I think there's a lot of folks, and we're in close touch with uh, people at the IEEE. In fact, I think they're, they're sort of head standard fella and the AI side of things is going to be part of the same series. Constantinos. Are you talking about uh, Tufi then? Tufi Saliba? No, no, not Tufi. No, no, no. I'm talking about Constantinos, who you may or may not have been in a couple of events with. Tufi, Tufi is also playing a lead role in the the AI standards committee of the IEEE. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to do a bit of Googling there. Yeah, but- you, should, you should talk to him. He's got his own uh, fascinating Theories here. On- okay, cool. And he's mostly he's mostly interested in standards for, I mean he's interested in everything and has a lot of insights. But his uh, his central focus in our conversations on this uh, has been on uh, privacy and uh, security. Tuvi's the blockchain fella, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we spoke at the exact same. We we literally spoke one after each other at Interpol World, so the kind of global police organization. We spoke on oh, stage one after another. Talking about. Yeah, they're using uh, their total blockchain. Yeah, yeah. Too. Anyway, we're totally going yeah, off on a, on a bit of a right? on a bit of a tangent. Yeah. The listeners can tell that I'm familiar with you uh, casually now. But yes, yes. No, I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm now I'm now familiar. So I should yank him in for a convo as well. But as you were saying here, you're talking about standards maybe being foundational blocks for governance. Do you see it operating that way? I think there's some people that see that GDPR is a sort of funky thing that Europe is trying to impose that America may not fully embrace and that the Slavic world or South America or other places may not really fully embrace. It, it might sort of influence and bend some things to do business in I Europe. Mean, GDPR is clunky and in many respects is very annoying to deal with from the perspective of a software developer. So I mean, uh, with my practical software developer and designer hat on, I hate GDPR. It's a pain in the ass. So oh, yeah. On I the mean, other hand, I think it, it's pointing in, it's pointing in a promising direction, right? And I mean, of course, I could rewrite the GDPR regulations in in ways I liked better, but I, in in the end, I think the direction of data sovereignty and AI model explainability is going to be an important direction, and that's a direction in which I can see global standards potentially being adopted by governments and by and by big tech companies. And I think that got it. Okay. That, that can help 
drive rational AI governance in, in the sense that, I mean, if you're going to have a democracy among entities that don't speak the same language and can't understand each other at all, you have a very hard time, right? Yeah. Whereas if, if you have a democracy among entities that can comprehend what each other are doing and that in a sense can speak the same language, then at least you have a better place to start from. And so having more transparency and explainability among your AIs, it gives you a better foundation for a kind of global democracy of, of AIs, whatever particular form that may take. Okay. So, so your thought is if these different permutations of how to handle standards, how to handle let's say, principles and turn them into some level of practice. If these develop and, and they're, they're hard won and they're reasonably well thought out, even if clunky, then it might sort of force a dynamic, kind of like the internet, where you know, you're not going to develop a technology that doesn't use Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi is a standard that kind of everybody's on with. So you're, you're going to yeah. sort of play, play along. And this kind of fits into what you were saying about AI becoming kind of self-governing, where you know, applications that interact with consumers, there's very firm, yeah, you know, yeah. expectations. If you talk about the international aspect, I'm guessing we're going to see more of a trend of different countries not wanting U.S. companies to control all their people's data and, and to make, you know, AI-driven decisions that guide their people's lives. I mean, China, of course, has been extreme. And by building the Great Firewall, they're the only place that has their own independent AI and internet ecosystem. But India is moving in that direction with increasing regulations about, about what you can do with Indian people's data if you're a foreign-owned company or if your database is out of India. Yeah, yeah. If you look at what happened with Uber, many countries basically made laws saying, well, no, it should be uh, you know a company owned and based in our country that 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 mediates our, our our ride sharing here like why why do we need a foreign country to be gathering all the data and extracting all the profit for consensual ride sharing arrangements among our own citizens right so yeah I mean, I, I yeah think, so if you go in that direction where you have more and more countries basically having their own googles or their own facebook's or whatever then you'll have a situation where really the intelligence is going to have to reside in the global network, the community of AIs, rather than in, in one company's database. I'm somewhat guessing that's the direction we're going. So, so you do suspect that this kind of confluence of principles in practice that are bubbling forth in different countries about how they're defending their economy and privacy and data sovereignty, etc., that those will sort of potentially bubble up to enough of a shared web, again, it won't be identical, but enough of a shared web globally where these various AI services sort of, again, play by a similar set of rules. And however they're quote-unquote governed, it's almost governed by this mass of preferences. Yeah, it can and, be like, like the governance of the internet, right? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, have, yeah. you have standards for interoperability, which are incredibly important. You have the rules of the game. And there is there are governance committees and so on, but the, the governance committees are just there – they're dealing with like, you know, when can, when can we introduce like .ai or .sex domain name or something, right? I yeah. mean, they're, 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 not, they're not legislating whose web page can, can go online. If we have sort of an internet of AIs, and it may be that decentralized blockchain-based networks like SingularityNet or Ocean Protocol and so on are, are part of that internet of AIs, 
I mean, then then you have some people's greatest dream and some people's worst nightmare, right? Because I, I, I mean, it's a it's a dream if you want something that's sort of uh, open and anarchic, where general intelligence can self-organize in a participatorily guided way. It's a nightmare if you're Nick Bostrom or someone who thinks you should have like UN guided top-down control yeah, let, let's, of, the, of the advance of general intelligence of the AI. Let's, let's talk about that, Ben. So we're talking now, we're leaning now into general intelligence. You know, as this technology becomes more powerful, everything we're talking about will become more and more relevant. At some point, maybe who controls these technologies and what they do will, will be the most relevant things, arguably. This is a big dynamic here for you is sort of the Bostrom, you know, potentially pull the UN together, think about these principles high level, and then you have an alternative view. Can you kind of paint both sides of that fence real quick? Obviously, you have a position here, but but are you able to frame this argument? And then we can go a little bit into your thoughts here on the future before we wrap up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know Nick Bostrom pretty well. I mean, we, we worked together at, on the World Transhumanist Association. Back in the day. organization yep. we involved in before it rebranded to Humanity Plus. And we organized the AGI conference at the Future of Humanity Institute in the, might have been 2012 or something. So, yeah. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a careful thinker and he's an interesting uh, guy, good human being. I, I see where he's coming from. I mean, what, what Nick is after, as he said in his book, Super Intelligence, I mean, he's, he just is afraid of bad actors getting a hold of like early stage, making the leap to full on artificial general intelligence and then, you know, making evil AGIs that serve their own selfish means, either intentionally wreaking havoc on the world or unintentionally wreaking havoc in the world just while trying to make a lot of money or achieve military domination or something. You know, I mean, he, he's viewing it as uh, you'd view biological weapons and nuclear weapons or something like early stage agis are like nuclear material and if they're in the wrong hands they could they can end the human yeah, race this vulnerable world hypothesis and whatnot for those of you who aren't familiar with bostrom you know, there's, mean, a, there's that, a lot to google that's yeah. not completely stupid like those risks do exist on, on on the other hand i think he he underestimates the downside of having some elite group develop the world's most powerful and dangerous technology like in, in a secret sealed chamber un, un, underneath the UN headquarters or something. I mean, I think that a study of history would indicate many, many ways in which that could go awry, right? I mean, of yeah, course, yeah. I mean one, one problem is, unless you have a really good global fascist dictatorship, there's probably going to be another group somewhere else Full of uh, maverick hackers who didn't want to work in that in that sealed basement and who may develop the AGI first anyway. But I mean, then I mean the potential for corruption or the potential for that group to be taken over by someone with with less benevolent ends. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong there, right? And then how how do you get around these issues of this sort of uh, elitist uh, top secret Manhattan Project approach. Well, one approach is you go the exact opposite direction. You say, well, open source code is more robust than proprietary code right now. And uh, 
you know, decentralized distributed networks like the the internet have done a real lot of good. And I, I don't want the internet to operate like mobile does, right? Mobile is, is run by a few big companies. The internet is decentralized and standards-based. And I mean, mo- mobile, if the internet worked like mobile, every time you crossed the national border, you'd start paying insanely high roaming charges to access your email, right? I mean, yeah. and, and you wouldn't have any meaningful encryption because all the services you use would have to be mediated by a few big companies or by the mobile provider directly. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of ways in which in actual practice, these decentralized networks that have emerged in the last few decades have been huge forces for good and often have brought the best out of humanity rather than rather than the worst. But there's a risk there, which Bostrom and, and his ilk are, are seeing. I mean, the risk is if you make a decentralized open source network, which is an early stage AGI, and you know it's it's helping the starving children, it's designing new medicines, it's in making new energy saving in, in inventions, it, it's doing all the good stuff. Then, like, how do you stop Doctor Evil? Right? How do you stop some nasty billionaire from forking the open source code, hiring a thousand developers to work in his in his uh, Haunted mansion on into something nasty and using it to take over the world. And you you can't prevent that. But the, the problem is if the AI is being developed by Trump or the UN, you can't prevent that either. Right? I mean I mean that's uh, this is just the problem that, that human beings still have something close to like ape-like motivational systems. But we're on the verge of developing self-modifying code that can that can double its IQ every second, right? And that that problem is there, whether you're centralized or decentralized. I guess my intuition, bolstered by a lot of analysis, but nothing fully conclusive, my intuition is that we're more likely to get to a beneficial-minded AGI and then a happy future for human and AIs alike if we develop toward AGI in a, a decentralized sort of heterogeneous and and democratic sort of way. Yeah. But, I mean, we can't prove, none of us knows of what course, Of course, of right? yep. course. We can't, we can't prove who's right or wrong. But I think this is important to riff on really quick. So I'm, and I, I don't think Bostrom is uh, just as you are sort of, I think aptly and, uh, rightfully, you know, shedding light on none of us knowing anything. I, I think Bostrom is, Kind of a pessimist all around in terms of the long ball, at least from hearing him speak and interviewing the man. At least that's my take on him is that he he doesn't think the UN basement is is a clear pass. Clearly, there's issues there. No, he, he he thought it was more so when he wrote Superintelligence, and then since that time, the cat kind of got out of the bag, right? Like since that time, it became clear big companies have grabbed the ball of AI development, and it's very hard to see how a government agency is going to get it back. Yeah, well, I would suspect that if Google is going to develop legit AGI, the DoD would just take them over the next day, like super forcefully. That's actually what I think would happen. Google's not going to run the show. There will be a feeling in the air. There will be rustles in the breeze, well, and, can, and the DoD can, will just Google, jump in there. You can Google Eric Schmidt's NSA connections if you want, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, well, that, that's where he is now, right? I mean, he shuffled out of there into the DoD. Yeah. So uh, regardless, you know, I think some folks are even sort of questioning – how AGI would develop in such a 
quote unquote decentralized way because in, in, in the ecosystem you're talking about, standards gradually develop, user preferences gradually develop. There's a lot of global overlap. Big companies are out there with whatever, you know, chatbots and, you know, there's applications that are setting economic policy and there's applications, you know, things are just bubbling up from big tech players and small tech players and hobbyists on the weekend. And they're all kind of interacting in this almost internet like you know, not exact analogy, but similar analogy, internet-like ecosystem, does AGI birth from those bumbling interactions? Or is somebody still going to ultimately sort of play the winning hand here and then have a massive influence over the entire network? I mean, I mean, it may be both, right? I mean, if, if I look at what we're trying to do with our, our OpenCog AI system and linking OpenCog with deep neural nets, to work toward general intelligence within Singularity Net platform. I mean, what what we're doing there, we're trying to build sort of the cognitive cortex of, of the decentralized global brain. So you you may have some AI agents that are doing most of the the abstract thinking and the reflective generalization, but then to achieve practical intelligence, they're linking together with a huge amount of other AI agents that are that are running running all over the world, right? And so, I mean, as and and with non-AI software agents. So, as, as a couple examples, like when our AI system uses OpenCog's reasoning algorithms to learn language. I mean, it's it's asking questions to neural net models that are similar to OpenAI's GPT-2 model. It's just asking it's asking that neural net model. Hey, here's a sentence I thought of. What's the probability of that sentence by your probability model over English, right? So you you have one AI that's learning language and learning the grammar of language and the meaning of language, but it's asking questions to this neural net built by a totally different organization as part of its thinking. And in in the case of say biological reasoning, so if if you're trying to find like which which combination of antivirals will work on, on COVID or which medications are going to help someone someone live longer. You may have an AI reasoning system thinking about this, but then it may make a request out to some other AI that has read every research paper on, on biology and could just be sort of oracle and answer questions about biology research papers. So you can have the intelligence sort of bubble up by these kinds of interactions between multiple different AI systems, but yet there could still be some AI agents in there that are doing sort of the most abstract and AGI-ish things. And that's kind of like how your brain works, right? I mean, you parts of your cortex are doing the, the abstraction and generalization, but I mean, that part of the cortex on its own will just sit there in your test tube, right? I mean, you, you need it connected to the visual cortex, you need it connected to the cerebellum, you need it connected to the, the basal ganglia that, 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 gives, that gives the goals to the, the endocrine system that modulates you know, motivation and mood. So, I mean, you, the whole behavior of general intelligence may come out of a decentralized network, and, and, and yet there may be still some particular components that are are most critical to the emergence of AGI out of, out of this network. And, you know, the thing is, that picture is probably too complicated for Donald Trump to understand, right? So, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, the subtleties of how AGI will emerge from a complex network from multiple agents with different degrees of causal force in this network, 
this is exactly the kind of thing that centralized government bureaucracies are probably not going to handle that well. But, uh, you know, a distributed network of people all over the world contributing pieces within an internet of AIs are, are, are going to be thinking through and, and deploying faster than the UN's committee is, is able to convene its meetings. So your supposition is that whatever bubbles forth from that, you know, frothy pit, and I think, you know, there's folks like Omohundro who are of the belief that, you know, sufficiently intelligent AI would sort of be fighting for its own preferences and kind of maybe duking it out in this ecosystem that may not be so happy-go-friendly should should there be ways to have there be winners or losers. But let's just say that's not the case. And we're, we're just kind of talking about different people contributing to this broad standard. Your thought is if AGI is to emerge from there and kind of becomes the governor, so to speak, that such an intelligence without overt construction would likely to bubble out to be something that that maybe would suit human aims and preferences more adequately than something built by specs in well, a basement somewhere. I mean, certainly Eliezer Yudkowsky, who I disagree with on a lot of things, an, an AI AI theorist from uh, Machine Intelligence Research, yeah, Mary, yep. formerly known as Singularity Institute, back in AI, the day, yeah, yeah. For a while, I was the research director there. But I mean, Eliezer. One of the points he often makes is that human values are complex. Like the human value system is a very complex and and particular thing. It's not really an abstract set of values like, you know, joy, compassion, and uh, nature and justice or something. I mean, what humans consider ethical versus, you know, reprehensible is weird and particular to us in some ways. Yep. You can't boil it down in a list of 50, 100, or 1,000 like precise rules to be obeyed. There's always going to be exceptions to those rules that would horrify you in practice, even though they seem to obey the ethical rules you wrote out. So, I mean, the result of that fact is that if your AGI is going to respect human ethics and principles and desires, it's going to have to learn these by example and by observation and by entering into shared activities with people in, 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 in shared environments. And that's how humans learn human ethics. And I think that's how an AI is going to have to learn human ethics. And I think, I mean, that could happen in a lot of different ways, of course. But you, you can see that if your AI emerges from a decentralized network whose pieces are actually working together with people to do all sorts of different interesting practical things in the world, many of which are benevolent and helpful to people. I mean, you, you can see in that setting that sort of experiential, inductive and abductive learning about human ethics is very likely to to happen, right? And yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at like what people are doing in the military context, putting in like rules of engagement, like one can a drone make the decision to kill someone versus one does it have to act, ask its human controller or something. I mean, they're, they're taking a very military doctrine-based approach to that and writing down precise rules to follow. And that, I mean, that approach has value in some contexts, but it's not going to work for giving an AGI human values. Yeah, it, uh, hard, hard coding the way that we've developed ethics, I think, would be, uh, as you're aptly pointing out, awfully challenging. That said, you know, if, as you had said, if it's doubling its IQ, you know, every second, 
the very supposition that anthropomorphic values that we have English words for uh, would have any resonance at all to such a mind, I think is sort of could be seen as borderline ridiculous into itself. But but let's maybe maybe we'll hope there's enough of them for uh, to at least treat us kindly in the interim. But hopefully, well, for, I mean, uh, I mean yeah, if you want to take that direction, like I I don't understand all the ins and outs of ethics and morality among squirrels and bunnies in Yellowstone Park, right? I mean, there, there, there's a lot of specifics about the squirrels treat their family members. Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I watch them in the park sometimes. It's cool to see, but I don't – I get it among dogs a little bit because i got four dogs in my house. But even, even there, I'm often mystified. On, on the other hand, we're able to maintain – large parks and let the squirrels do their thing right and i mean yeah 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 we know that we we don't want to cut them into little pieces we can see that locking them in cages is bad we can see we should leave some trees and dirt there right so we don't have to empathize with every aspect of squirrel ethics and culture in order to be able to provide them a context in which they can manifest that ethics and and culture right and in the same it's it's enough that we give a shit about allowing them to maintain their autonomy in ethics and culture they don't have to get all the details and i think that's that's the same way with the super agi and the human race if the super agi wants to allow humans to continue to operate and do their thing it's really smart it's going to be able to do that it doesn't have to understand exactly how much we feel we owe our, our first cousin versus our great uncle. And uh, I, I will say I can share optimism in that idea. I have my fingers crossed, Ben, that the very notion of sort of the sovereignty of the little things from the perspective of the big things is not itself anthropomorphic. And I, I hope deeply that it isn't. Um, I know that that's all we have for time. But hopefully today people have got a deeper perspective on the benefits of the decentralized side of things. And Ben, I appreciate you sharing it with us. So thanks for being able to join us on the podcast. Oh, thanks a lot, Dan. This is a lot of uh, cool things to think about. So I look forward to the next time. So that's all for this special AI Futures episode. I hope you enjoyed our material here with Ben Gertzel. Next Saturday is going to be episode 12 of 12 of our AI governance series. We're going to be wrapping it up with Hugo de Garris, someone who is writing about the intergovernmental implications of creating artificial general intelligence way back in 1989. This is someone who's been thinking about this for an inordinate period of time, almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, And so it's great to have Hugo as our capping session talking about the long-term consequences in terms of governance for creating strong AI or artificial general intelligence. This coming Tuesday, we're going to be back at it with our normal rigmarole of business-related topics, AI use cases kicking back in in three days. So join us here for Tuesday there. And otherwise, look forward to having you with us in our last episode in the special future series next Saturday. So all the best, and I'll catch you in our next episode. 